0: So here in Acts chapter 2 is where we are, and uh, just to catch everybody up in case you haven't tracked along with us, uh, very, very briefly, uh, Jesus has lived, he's died, he's uh, um, rose from the dead, he uh, uh, spent some, about 40 days with his uh, followers, uh, about 120 of them, and then he said, go wait in Jerusalem, they waited about 10 days, they prayed, they took some other organizational steps, um, and then uh, the Spirit of God came upon them, the Holy Spirit came, they called Pentecost. Fell like tongues of fire, and all sorts of miraculous things started happening. They were um, then speaking about the things that God had done, and people were hearing it in their own language. It was an incredible moment. Uh, and then Peter stands up. And, well, the, the accusation came from the crowd. Dude, y'all hit the sauce awfully early this morning. And Peter said, oh, "Man, we don't start drinking till noon. It's only nine o'clock, and so and it's not that." Um, and then. Uh, then he says, this is the important part, joking aside. He says, if you, if you want to know what's happening, what you see happening is what God has already said was going to. This that you see is that which God has spoken. And that was kind of last week. This is that. And so um, today we're going to pick up and move forward a little bit uh, in the second part of Peter's sermon. Uh, because uh, in the first part, he's kind of bearing witness to the experience to say this is what was going on, uh, and and God had already said that it was going to happen, and now he turns the corner to begin to persuade them that this is these are some things that have been true for a long, long time, and and they're actually things that we want to be true, and then he makes a a plea at the end, and so uh, today we're going to start. I'm gonna, just for context. I'm starting verse twenty two. Many of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, you you know the kind of life that He lived. Verse 23, This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is not plan B, folks. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And boy, that's a word that we need to hold on to today. We need to stand right in the middle of that to say we believe that. Verse 25. Peter keeps going, and this is where he begins to turn the corner a little bit and move towards this kind of persuading. For David says, concerning him, concerning whom? Who is he talking about? Say it out loud. Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Okay, so David is, this is Psalm 16 that he's about to quote. He's talking about Jesus. David says, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Can we just pause for a second? Pause. It's not that the world doesn't shake around us. It's that when we fix our eyes on God and set him before us and he is at our right hand, we don't have to shake along with it. Your world may be going to hell in a handbasket right now. Because he is at your right hand, you don't have to go with it. Okay? Verse 26. Therefore, my heart was glad... My tongue rejoice, my flesh also will dwell secure or in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then he goes on, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's a mouthful. Let's just pause for a second and think about it. For um, What we've said is the heart of this series is kind of two... Uh, Twofold. There's a a love and a dove, if you will, to the heart of this thing. And there's part of it that says, God, we want to be inwardly transformed by the Spirit of God. We want to see you work inside of us so that we are the kind of people like Peter who would deny him and then about seven weeks later stand up and say, even if you kill me, this is the truth. Like folks, that's transformation right there. I cannot stand before a little servant girl in a courtyard while the person I've been following is on trial in there. I'm going to deny him. And then Peter's like, hey, let me tell you about all the things that God is doing and has done. I mean, that's just two radically different people. May that be our experience too. May we, the, the day in, day out, walk with Jesus. May that kind of inward transformation happen in us. And then the second part of that, that's, that's, a, that's an equal part. It's just kind of the expression, the, the outward expression of that is, as we are inwardly transformed, God then moves us outward in ministry. Why do we continually point to that? Because there are so many people around us who need ministry. There are people around us who are lost. There are people around us who are hurting. There are people around us who are stuck. There are people around us who are bound up. And there are all sorts of things that are happening around us as a result of people's choices and the brokenness in our world. And God sends not some professional, not some guy with a microphone. He sends all of us outward in ministry uh, to, to bring the kind of kingdom power to bear on those situations. So Peter, as he begins to persuade people, he starts with this guy named David, King David from the Old Testament, right? And he quotes this Psalm, right? And he he makes sure that we know that David, verse 25, David says concerning him, David is pointing to Jesus. And the essence of it goes like this. Um, uh, You you know that there is a, uh, boy, David was a great king, um, but he's not a great enough king to handle the kingdom that's coming. Man, you know, David was awesome. Psalmist and Goliath and all of that kind of stuff. He is not awesome enough to handle what needs to be done here in the earth. In other words, Jesus is the better David. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the better David. <clears throat> when he says concerning this, uh, um, and prophesies. He talks about prophecy concerning this. He's writing the Psalm, Psalm 16. Uh, uh, Peter's saying, hey, David's writing this about Jesus. He didn't know his name, but he knew he was coming, and that's what he's about. And then he says, well, how do do you know this to be the case? Because he says, hey, listen, uh, you, you know where the tomb is of David, right? Everybody point to the tomb of David. Yeah, there it is right there, right? His bones are still in it. We know where the tomb of Jesus was. His bones are not there. And that's that's why he's the better David. That's why. So uh, just a couple of notes on this. Um, They were longing, if you will, for a king, right? They were longing for someone to lead them. And indeed, he says, Jesus is the one who's the king. Jesus is the one to lead. And he kind of breaks this down in a couple of ways and just see if this rings true with you. Uh, Jesus fulfills all that we want to be right in the world. In other words, all of these kind of longings in us for virtue, all of these longings in us for morality, all of these longing and longings inside of us for hope and order and good leadership and all of these kinds of things, Jesus fulfills what we want to be right in the world. The second part, that's kind of the out there stuff, right? We, want, we see some stuff out there and it's broken. So we want it to be right. The second part of that is not so much out there as it is in here. Jesus not only fulfills what we want to be right in the world, but he also fulfills um, the deepest longings of our souls. So things for uh, uh, passion and a purpose and a significance and a satisfaction and a story that's big enough to live in. Jesus fulfills those longings. Again, I just point to these guys wanted a king. And Peter goes, David was a great king. There's a greater king. He wasn't great enough. There's a greater king. And it's the Messiah. It's Jesus. Um, And then he says in verse 26, excuse me, 28. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. In other words, he's talking about the deepest longings and desires of our souls. He says God is the one who is to meet that. So not only do we have stuff happening out there, we, we also have stuff happening in here. Why are we working on this? What does, this doesn't make a difference. Here's why I think, it, I think it makes a difference. Does anybody? We'll start with a second one. Anybody have any deep... Longing for satisfaction or purpose? Anybody want to have a story that's big enough to live in? Anybody know somebody that you work with or live next to or are married to or are raising? Has a a longing for satisfaction, has this sense that I want to live in something and for something big. Jesus fulfills the deepest desires of not only my soul, but also all of those people around me that I have contact with. Anybody know anything wrong with the world? Anything wrong, busted in the world out there? Just checking? And we see that, and I don't mean like, hey, this is wrong, and I wish it were right, because that would make me more comfortable. We look at that, and we go, that's wrong, okay? Okay comfort, whatever. That is wrong. And I just see that it's wrong. And we go, that needs to be right. And inside of us, we know, we can know that Jesus fulfills what we want to be right in the world. That the way that that can be made right is by the kingdom of God coming in that kind of situation. He's the better David. That's what he's Persuading, And I'm saying that to say this. We've got people in our lives who look at the world and go, boy, the world is busted and broken. Man, I wish there were someone somewhere who could lead us on uh, to something better. And we go, I know a guy. Golly, I wish we had a, a leader that would, that would lead us into something. I know a leader like that. God, I wish there were somebody who can move up. I know somebody who can do that. And then some people, you're sitting across chips and queso from them, they're sipping on their sweet tea, and they're kind of vomiting out the guts of their soul, and all you hear is, I'm really longing for something deep and important and consequential in my life. And we over chips and queso say, I I know a guy. I know the guy who wants to fulfill the deepest longings of your soul. Because he fulfilled the deepest longings of mine. That's why it matters, folks. It matters because ministry matters and is happening every day, whether or not we're part of it, whether or not we realize that question then Peter goes on to persuade them. But, but but the question is, how then? How do we know that this is true? Well, Peter says, look down in verse 32. He not only has said, hey, he's talking about, David's talking about Jesus because David is still in the grave. Jesus is the one who did not see corruption. Verse 32, he goes on to say, as a part of his argument, as a part of his persuasion, uh, this Jesus God raised up, and of, the, of that we are all witnesses. In other words, um, how do you know that this is true? And the, the answer is the gospel. The gospel. God has raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he's saying. And of this, we are all witnesses. Can we just put this on record? Like, let's be the people who objectively and certainly stand on that particular truth. We believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of God. And he says that of this, we are all witnesses. He just steps right into that. He's not trying to argue anybody into the kingdom. He's just announcing this as fact. How do we know, how do we know that Jesus is better than David? God raised Jesus from the dead. Secondly, he says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having uh, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, God has kept his promise of sending the Spirit. How do we know this? God raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead. And secondly, he has kept his promise about the Spirit. That's what he says. That's an important thing. Hey, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to ascend to the Father, be at his right hand, and then he's going to send the promise of the Spirit. He's going and that's exactly what he has done. And then lastly, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your foot sole. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How do you know this is true? How do you know that Jesus is the better David. God has raised him from the dead. He has kept his promise of the spirit. And now we see God has declared King Jesus is the Lord. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who is clearly in charge. That's what he says. He is both the Lord and the Christ, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is reigning right now. And he steps into that. Can we just now pause for this side note? Peter's a fisherman, right? I mean, like, Not a professional. He didn't have a seminary degree. Like, he just, he fished. Fifty days or so beforehand, he had denied Jesus. So, it's not like he doesn't come with baggage. I'm saying that to say this Peter is not uniquely smooth in his presentation. Like, he's not just, well, let me tell you. That's not him. You know what he is, though? He's certain. I say that, church family, because there are times when I, I know this doesn't happen to you. There are times when I get into a conversation with someone about spiritual things, things that really, really matter. And I start thinking to myself, self, you better say this right or it's going to screw up bad, right? I, 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 don't stutter. Just, just... Peter's not smooth, folks, but he is certain. And, and the reception that that uh, uh, these people had was not based on his smooth and cool presentation. The reception that that they had was based on his certainty. He stood on this fact. Jesus has come. He has lived perfectly. He has died sacrificially. He has risen victoriously. He has ascended gloriously to the right hand, and one day he is coming back for his people. I'm going to root my life, base my life, stand on that particular rock. Come hell or high water or heaven's greatest joy, you will find me on that solid ground. Do you really think that's the case? I really think that's the case. Golly, you sure don't... I mean, are you sure? I'm very sure. I'm given my whole life to that right there. He wasn't smooth, but he was certain. May we be those kind of people. May we be those kind of people. Why? Because there's a world out there. Let's just talk about our world. We've used this little um, thing before. From Galveston Bay, we call it the four B's. From Galveston Bay to Brazoria County, from Beltway 8 down to the beach, Galveston. Everybody in their mind got that geography? 500,000 people as of 2010 in that geography. Whose geography is that, folks? That's our geography. We're dead smack in the middle of it. 500,000 people. 275,000 of them um, on the census said that they had no religious affiliation. In other words, they know that they're lost. Not to mention all the others. Hundreds of thousands of people need a, a, a group of people who are so certain about some things that they are willing to give their lives for those things. Yes, be willing to die for it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That, but that's actually the easy part. Let's be willing to live for that. That kind of certainty. Not, he's not persuading them with some slick presentation. He's persuading them with his certainty. I know Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He has come back from the dead. He is at the right hand of God. He has sent the Spirit. And I'm telling you, I'm standing here just as clear as I can trying to say these are the facts that I know to be true. We need to be that certain to convince folks out there to persuade those kind of people. He is not arguing. He's announcing. and I think that makes a lot of difference. So just moving ahead here in the text. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? So what, what was the response? The response was they were cut to the heart. Why? Because God had so overwhelmed them by the spirit of God, so um, pierced them with the truth and the certainty of the gospel and the objective, clear uh, picture of what Jesus had done that they were pierced. And they said, oh, we've got to do something. We just know that there has to be a fundamental shift of allegiance in our lives because in light of this, everything else everything else, has changed Brothers, what are we gonna do? We get pierced. We get pierced to the heart. Um, I say that to just take note that there's a there's a um, maybe a line of thinking about Christianity that sees it as the world's best add-on to the life that you really want to live. It's the secret in the secret sauce. Uh, you know, here I am. I'm it. You know, Kind of midlife here. Not sure about my purpose. I think I'll just take up Christianity. Like I'm going to take up golf. Or you know what I mean? Like, One of my favorite authors and pastors, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Christianity is not something that you take up. Christianity is something that takes you up. And that's what happened. They were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. And they, they just knew that something had to change. There, there had to be a transformation. So Peter, after we were, brothers, what are we, what are we supposed to do here? Verse 37, verse 38 now. Peter responds to them and says this. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive The gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, for the promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. He says these four things. This this is where he's already laid out the persuasive case, right? Certainty is where he's standing. And now he turns, brothers, what are we supposed to do? And his heart just begins to beat. And in his words, you kind of hear this, oh, please, please, out of all the things that you want to do, do these things. Like out of all the things that you could do, please do this. And he starts with repent. Repent. What does repent mean? Good Bible word. Literally, probably the best translation coming from the Greek, uh, which is the New Testament was written into the uh, English, would be something like change your thinking to change your mind. But it's more than just change your mind. Oh, I want to go here instead of here. No, no, no. It's more like I need to rethink my thinking in light of this. In light of what I know to be true, now I need to rethink my thinking. That's what repentance means. I once was thinking like this, and now I can see that, boy, that was a terrible way to be thinking. I need to think completely differently. I once see or thought Jesus was just a nice guy. Now I see that he has died for my sins. Then what needs to change in light of that? Well, a lot. So I'm going to start thinking differently. I want to see that, hey, maybe I can run my own life. This is the way that I was thinking. But man, that's a self-destructive path. That even if it's growing flowers, it's still a self-destructive path. It can be pretty and still deadly. And now in light of what Jesus has said and what he has done for me, I need to rethink my thinking in light of this. The easiest illustration, maybe if you've been around church, you've seen it a lot, where you're kind of going down a particular way. And then all of a sudden you realize this is a terrible way to be going. And so you repent, you turn away from that and you turn towards something. It's not just a matter of turning away from one thing and then just standing still. It's that there's a fundamental shift. Previously, I'm allied to myself and myself alone or some idol that I've erected or some person that I'm chasing or some cause. And now my heart has shifted. I've been pierced to the heart and the fundamental change in me says, now my allegiance is to Jesus. No longer walk in this path. Now I'm walking to him and with him. I'm turning from that to him. That's, that's what repentance means, to rethink your thinking in light of what, um, in light of who God is, in light of what Jesus has done. A new allegiance, a new surrender, if you will. Why do you why do we keep talking, but why are we belaboring this a little bit? Uh, because there's a strain. Of teaching, um, particularly in the Western church, that wants to give you uh, just enough Jesus uh, to make sure that you're okay. Here's the thing. Jesus is the Lord of all, not the Lord of just enough, right? And so you can't have just part of Jesus. Like you can't just get part of him. It's not how this works, right? He's not the flu shot where you can be protected from 28% or whatever effective it is this year, 0%, whatever it is. He's not just some little inoculation, right? Okay. You can't have Jesus for his benefits and not have him for his leadership. You can't have him uh, for, for the things that he wants to do for you and not have for the things that you don't necessarily want him to do for you. You can't have him as Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and also not have him as Lord. It's not You don't get to divide up Jesus and pick and choose which parts you want. He is not a buffet. Rethink your thinking in line of who he really is. Secondly, he says in verse 8, repent and then be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus. What is baptism about? Baptism is the outward symbol of this inward allegiance that we have, okay? It's this outward symbol of this inward allegiance. If you've seen people get baptized up here, um, what, what, is it? What, is, what do we do? We take somebody, we stick them down in the water, we count to 10. No, we don't really do that. We don't really We stick them down in the water and come back up. And um, we, we do it for a couple of different reasons. One is for the church. Because it's a reminder for us as the church that what? Somebody else has gone down for us and has come back up. They're preaching the gospel to us. Somebody else has gone down and carried our sins far away and then has risen and given us new life. That's why I think, and I say this semi-jokingly, I promise you, if you show up with this, I will sit beside you, okay? I think when we baptize somebody, somebody ought to break out one of those rally towels and swing it around and somebody blow one of those things that they do at New Year's. You know, I mean, like, I think we ought to have a party because we as a church are reminded that God has done something for us too. It ought to light us up. We do it for the person in the water because Jesus said to, and they're being obedient, but it's also for them, it's their testimony, hey, my old person has died. And my new, I used to be one way, but now God has transformed me and I am a different person. I'm an old, the old man, the old woman has gone away. And now this new person, this new person has come just like God said it would. An outward sign of inward allegiance. Now, uh, just for one second here, pause. Some people read verse 38. Uh, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. They think the for the forgiveness of your sins goes with the baptism. Can we be clear here? That's not what happens. That is not what this text says. You do not need to be baptized to be forgiven. Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 3 will say, uh, uh, baptism now saves you, not the washing of water, excuse me, not the washing away of dirt with water. In other words, not the physical act, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. He's not talking about a, a baptism that is actually forgive. I mean, all that, all that would be is, we, golly, we dunk everybody, right? I mean, like we go, oh, forgiven, oh, forgiven, oh, forgiven. No, no, no. The, the blood of Jesus does what water could never do. So let's not mistake it. Let's not mistake it. It's an inward, excuse me, an outward sign of the inward allegiance that is ours. Now, so I want to say that um, it is not necessary for salvation. If you've been taught that, let's just be free from that. Be free from that. It is not necessary for salvation. However, it is necessary. Um, in terms of uh, identifying with what Jesus has done and identifying with his people, I would just say this thing, because I, I want to elevate the importance of baptism to this level, this level, not above where it needs to be, but to this level. There is one, one person in the New Testament who is a believer and a follower of Jesus who is not baptized. The thief on the cross. That's it. Just One. I say that to say this, if you've been struggling, some of you come from different faith backgrounds, man, we would love to talk to you about why this is such an important thing, why this is a, a, a crucial part of who we are as a church family, why we do this in this way. So if you jot on the tear-off portion of your bulletin or just write a note, send an email, whatever, we'd love to have that conversation with you because we believe it is that important. It's an it's a obedience thing, and it's a symbol thing, and it's, a, it's a, right here in the text. Peter is very clear about it. Repent, be baptized. Okay. Um, just one more, one more comment. One more. It doesn't cost us much in the church in the West to be baptized. There are other places in the world where our brothers and sisters in Christ, they get baptized, and then they are under officially under death warrants. It doesn't cost us very much. So why not? Why not be obedient? Why not follow in what he's said to do? Okay, moving ahead here. Um, He he talks about the next thing, for the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness is the release from the debt that we owe to God. It it is highly unpopular to talk about sin and talk about forgiveness of sin, but let's be clear um, that the message of Christianity is Jesus has come to save you. Save you from what? Save you from your sins. He died for our sins. He wants to release us from the debt that we owe to God because of our sins. And you think to yourself, I don't owe much of a debt. I mean, like, I'm not that bad. Listen, you don't measure the the offense, the nature of the offense uh, by the person doing the offending. You measure the nature of the offense by the person who's been offended. And in this particular case, we're talking about the infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy God. And so our offense then is an infinite offense. In other words, the scale is so tipped against us, you could work your entire life doing nothing but good things and never move the needle a bit. Forgiveness says, I'm not only going to even that out for you, but because of Jesus, I'm going to tip it in your favor and I'm going to call you a son or a daughter. That's, that's, that's what... Forgiveness is about being free from the debt that you and I have, but also um, living in right relationship uh, with him. And lastly, he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the down payment for you and for me for all that is to come. All the things that, are, that God is going to do, will do in the future. All the things that are out there, it's, he's the down payment for us to come. He is our guarantee as he takes ownership of our lives so that we are filled with him and we are under his influence. And then the repercussions of that, verse 39, the promises for you, your kids, and for all who are far off. In other words, everybody else too. Everybody gets in on this deal. The repercussions of that are, stretch far and they stretch wide. They change generations and they influence outsiders because it's, this is how he does it. This is how he does it. Verse forty, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, "Save yourselves from this crooked generation." Just pause here. Save yourselves. I thought Jesus was our savior. Yes, he's our savior. He's not saying uh, he's not saying you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's saying, "Listen, you've heard the truth, and now it's time to respond." And that's really kind of where we are. You've heard the truth. And now it's time to respond. Do you need to turn from your sin, repent? Do you need to rethink your thinking in light of who he is? Do you need to make a commitment um, to be baptized and to follow him in that way? Do you need to live in the forgiveness uh, that he has purchased for you and then extend that to others? Do you need to get in step with the spirit somehow? He's told you to do something, commanded you to do something, shown you something you should be doing right now. And you're like, I'm not so sure. You've heard what he said, and now it's your turn to respond. What happened at Peter's, in Peter's case, verse 41? So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a pretty good day at church, if you ask me. I don't know about you, but it's a pretty good sermon. I mean, way better than the one you're hearing right now. I put that before you to say God can work miraculous effects when people do what he tells them to do. So for you, you're here this morning. Do you need to turn? Do you need to rethink your thinking in light of who he is and what he's done? Do you need to take a step to identify with his people um, and and in the ways that he said uh, are important, like baptism? Do you need to experience and live in forgiveness and then extend it? Do you need to um, do something that the Spirit has said? It fits every one of us in here. In some manner. So the question is what then will we do in response? Let me pray, and then we'll sing one song. Um, If you need to go ahead and get your stuff settled, feel free to do that, but just have a moment of quiet here. Maybe you ask yourself that question that I just asked you is there something I need to do to respond? And Holy Spirit, we're committed to You. Um, And we're committed to the kingship of Jesus in our lives. He is both Christ our Savior and the Lord that we follow. So on behalf of every person here, I pray that You would speak to them and let them hear what they need to hear this morning. Minister to them in a way that only they... in the way that they know it is you. God, increase our certainty. Ruin us for the ordinary stuff of this earth. Thanks for this gathering this morning, and thank you for your word. Would you continue to speak in this, sir? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.